The main character in this book of Ecclesiastes might seem gloomy or negative. What's the point of it all, he says? What's the point? You may think in the type of person you wouldn't want as a friend. If that's the case, you've misunderstood him. Because throughout this book, we see not only his humanity, but also his wisdom. And crucially, he understands that the only life <laughs> worth living is one with God at its centre. You might remember that the character is called Kohelet, that's his name, Kohelet. But the, main, the name means the preacher. So I'll call him Kohelet, or the preacher, or sometimes Solomon. He has something important to say about God and life, and he wants to gather people around him to listen. Now, given that generations of people have read this book, he's gathered an audience bigger than he could ever have imagined. Quickly, in the first three chapters then, what, what have been his observations so far? Well, at its heart, every generation is pretty much the same. Life is full of trouble. Sin is everywhere. Self-indulgence can be fun, but doesn't fully satisfy. Learning can be stimulating, but it still ends in death. People die, and other people spend their hard-earned money. Everyone is going to the grave, just like every other creature. And within a very short space of time, they'll be forgotten. So the only life worth having is one with God. That's heavy. But he hasn't finished yet, so what, what have we read today? Well, in verse 1 he talks about oppression. There's oppression everywhere. It's been the same throughout history, hasn't it, hasn't it friends? It's, we've seen uh, children and elderly people being treated cruelly. We've had um, white people uh, enslaving black people. We've had black people enslaving white people. We've had peace-loving Hindus and peace-loving Muslims slaughtering each other. There's oppression everywhere, suffering of different types. And it has to be said, even those who have called themselves Christians have, have, have tortured and killed people and committed genocide. At any one time, it's fair to say millions of people around the world are suffering at the hands of other people being oppressed. And wise Kohelet says, at least the people who've already died don't have to suffer or even see it. He even wonders whether it would have been better if the person had never been born. 
verses 4 and 8, we see the preacher marvelling at workaholics. Workaholics. He seems to think the biggest motive for these people is envy. They want more money. They want more stuff. They want more praise from others. And I think some of them enjoy others being envious of them. Some workaholics, he says, they don't even have any relatives to provide for or to share their money with, but they still work themselves into the ground. They never reach a point where they say, I have enough now, that'll do. In verse 5, um, he talks about the one folding his hands. It's a picture of some guy sitting, you know, with his feet up. A lazy guy. Um, there are lazy people. We live in a society where there are plenty of lazy people. They can work, but they're just lazy. And some of them manage to pull off uh, a, a fraud whereby uh, the state gives them free money just to sit there. But the truth is, for most of man's history, people who couldn't be bothered working would be in serious trouble and might even starve. Verse 6 is a, another proverb which sort of answers the previous one. Verse 6 says, there's a sensible balance between being a workaholic and being lazy. You know, work hard, but just don't go mad. What else in verse 10? He laments the, um, well, both the loneliness in the world, genuine loneliness, and some people's desire to avoid other people. Those people who want to just go it alone. They don't want anyone's help. And then, from verse 13 onwards, it's an outline of a story about an old king who should have been wise but was foolish. Um, you think, well, surely as you get older you become more wise. That's a general rule, but there are plenty of exceptions. He asks, uh, well, is there any hope then in the young man who will replace the king? Perhaps he will grow in wisdom and become a great king and rule over millions. Well, whether he does or doesn't become wise, the harsh reality is he'll die like everyone else. And even if some facts about a king find their way into the history books, the person of the king will soon be forgotten. Harsh realities. But I want us to use this chapter to describe three types of people in this world who are in need of another. I want to show how God is the person that we all need. And I intend to show not only that God is the best friend we can have, but that he uses people as helpers in his mission of befriending people in this world. 
So firstly, the first type we're going to look at is the one with no comforter. So we're basing that on verse 1. The one with no comforter. Because we, we see in verse 1, he says, I saw all kinds of oppression in this world. There was shedding of tears without measure. But they had no comforter. All the power was in the hands of the ones who oppressed them. But again, they had no one to comfort them. Everyone suffers. Each one of you have suffered in some way. I've suffered. And obviously some is where some types of suffering are worse than others. Uh, sometimes it's unimaginably worse. But how much more worse is it when people have no one to turn to? They suffer but don't even have the simplest of helps. Someone to talk to. Someone to share their troubles with. Someone who sympathise with them. Someone who promised to always be there for them. How much worse is it? They don't have a shoulder to cry on, but a pillow. As they cry themselves to sleep every night. What a desperate situation. It's no wonder, folks, that the preacher says the people who've died are better off. Nothing can be more opposite to this than the comfort found in God. Because how much better is the one who has God to lean on? When God chooses to make his kindness known to a sinful creature like you and me, he reveals himself to that person. They hear the gospel preached in the city centre or Someone gives them a piece of Christian literature. Maybe they find themselves intrigued by something they found on the internet. Or maybe they just turn up a church out of a curiosity. And God gives a glimpse of himself to that person. He makes that person aware of the peril they've been in their whole lives. Because... They were independent of God and so they were his enemy. And they start to see the dreadful end which faces them should they stay outside of that circle of God's people. Then having understood the gospel, they acknowledge their sinfulness. They go to God in prayer and they say they believe Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who came into the world to save sinners. In other words, they repent and they believe the gospel. Then, that man, that woman, that young person, they see another side of God. They see him as one who will never leave them. They see one who will stand with them in their suffering. They see him as the very best shoulder to cry on. The one who will give comfort like no one else can. And then they grow in knowledge of God and they come to see something wonderful. That he is Lord as well. 
that even, even our very suffering is not out of his control. That he puts us through many trials. Yet they also learn that the end God will accomplish in these trials is spiritual growth. Here's the second example, the second type. You have a look at verse 8. We're looking at the one with no family. The person with no family. So in verse 8, the preacher says to us, Consider the person who has no close family, no wife, no brothers, no sisters, no children even. He has no one to provide for apart from himself. Yet he works himself into the grave trying to get more and more money. Kohelet, the, the preacher, wonders why such a person never says to themselves, why am I wasting my life? Working every hour God sends. Why indeed? Did you know that people who don't have God as their father are illegitimate children? It's what the Bible says, they are illegitimate children. If you don't have God as your father, you are illegitimate. That means most of the people in this world are from God's standpoint, the only standpoint that matters, they are illegitimate. They are not classed as children of God. Right? Now in terms of what we mean when we say illegitimate, that may or may not be the case. I was illegitimate. Uh, I think maybe a couple of you were as well. But that's not what this is about. It's not important. What matters for your eternal well-being is whether you have God as your father or not. We've all got friends and relatives who just want to get through life and do enjoyable things and fulfil ambitions without being in a relationship with God. And they are going to spend a lifetime excluded from God's family. And even in the world that is to come, they'll find themselves excluded. <clears throat> the good news, should a man or woman desire to hear it, is that God adopts children. God is in the business of adoption. He's already adopted a multitude and I expect he is about to adopt a whole lot more. It's through the gospel that a sinner will learn that, if anything, they don't have God as their father. If anything, they're really children of Satan. They understand that their sin has kept them excluded from that holy family. They accept that their uh, destiny would have been to remain on the outside forever. I can vaguely recall a scene in a film, maybe, maybe a dreamt if, who knows. And I'm picturing, a, I'm picturing someone outside in the snow at Christmas time. 
Um, it's at night time. They look through the living room window of this house, and the lights are on, and there's a, there's a meal taking place in front of a, um, an open, nice open fire. And they look and they see this family, and it's a family that they've excluded themselves from. They've excluded themselves. And they look in and they see the father distributing food around to all the family. And I don't think there's a scene that is more uh, intense as that to show what exclusion is like. But in the story of the gospel, there is often a different ending. The gospel promises people that if they knock on that door, it will be open for them. And so it is that the sinner goes to God and asks for forgiveness of their sins. They bang on the door of God, if you like, and they beg to be admitted into that family. And for those few, God welcomes them in. The humble sinner is now addressed as son. And he's given permission to address God as father. Father. Dad doesn't sound quite right, does it? Dad. But that's the type of word used in scripture because it describes an exceptionally close relationship and it involves a father who, unlike me, is perfect in all his ways. If you can imagine what all the best qualities of a mother and a father and a brother and sister would be and combine them all, then God has them all in abundant excellence. Here is the third example, the third type of person found in verse 10. The one with no companion. It's the one who has no companion. In verse 10, the preacher continues, How awful it is for the one who is alone when he's in trouble and doesn't have anyone to help him. And he gives three examples. Imagine two workers two workmen and one has an accident and his workmates will help him. Not so with the one who wants to do work alone. He could be in the middle of nowhere, he could be dying in a ditch and no one would know anything about it. Imagine a husband and wife travelling through the Middle East and they camp outdoors each night and it gets very cold in that region at night. But at least they can hunt together for warmth. This is one of his examples. The one who is alone will just have to stay cold. Imagine two girls who go out for a meal together and they have to go through a poorly lit part of town. An attacker jumps out the entry, grabs one of them, tries to drag her away. He soon realises she's not alone. The friend who's a few paces back fixing a shoe or some other thing. 
she sees all this and she jumps in and she starts hitting this guy and of course he runs off and how different it would have been if he targeted a young woman by herself so we could think of other examples no doubt we could think of more examples most things are better than you have a companion it is interesting that uh, in this book of Ecclesiastes you know, Solomon's saying most things you do in life is pointless. You know, that's his, his attitude. And, but he never says that about friendship. He never says friendship is pointless. Anyway, it's only fair to say not all people who are alone are in that position by choice. Some people would love to have help with jobs. Some people would love to have a mother or a father or a sibling in their lives. Some people would love to have friends. Some don't have friends because they just, they mix with too few people to make many friends. And yes, there are other people who don't have friends because of some characteristic that annoys the life out of people, but they, they don't see it. But having said all this, even if we have an abundance of friends, there's a problem. Friends come and go. Friends will let you down. Friends can quickly become your worst enemies. And if you live a long and healthy life, you have to go to the funerals of those friends. But how different is the friendship of God. He'll remain your friend. He'll never let you down. He'll be a friend now and a friend in the everlasting world to come. From before the creation of this whole universe, God had determined to befriend many people. And as the sovereign ruler of this world, he has manipulated every action in history to bring about the existence of those people that he's going to make friends with. They come into this world just like everyone else. They start sinning. Then they start sinning in a more sophisticated way, in a way where they won't get caught, won't be seen, won't be found out, so they think. And it's because of this love for sin that they are opponents of God. But remember, we're talking about people who are different now. These people who God seeks out, they have a curiosity about God their friends don't have. They don't know why they find themselves drawn towards God when others don't. They, they just know deep inside that there's a God and they need to find him. They need to, whatever it is, they need to get right with him. And at some point in their lives, they hear the message of the gospel. They may have already heard the gospel. Folks, I heard the gospel thousands of times, just in one ear and out the other. It didn't apply to me. But now they hear it 
They hear about the punishment that is just on the horizon for those who reject the Christ of God, which is Jesus. They hear about Calvary, a place called Calvary, about something which happened there 2,000 years ago. They hear about this Jesus of Nazareth, that he was not just a man, but he was divine as well. He was the Son of God become man. And they hear how that awful tragedy was in reality a, a glorious and essential part of God's purpose to save men and women from destruction. How did he do that? How did he manage that? Here's my illustration. Right, here's me. This is me. And like all of you, I've sinned a lot. So, God has taken note of every one of my sins and it turns out that they, they, they fill a book. In fact, it should be much higher than this. That's a record of my sins. And God looks at me and he sees me as one who's committed a multitude of sins. There's pride, there's lust, there's theft, rage, all kinds of stuff. But what, what do we do with criminals? Well, what do you think of a judge? What would you think of a judge who, uh, say, because he was such a nice guy, decided to let some child murder it off free? Go on, go on, I'm in a good mood, just off you go. Well, you'd be outraged. You'd say he has no right to the title of judge. Now, if God is the judge above all judges, we should fully expect him who is all righteousness to punish those who committed crimes against him, surely. And remember, crimes against him are far worse than crimes against uh, other people. It's in the very nature of God that he has to punish Paul Forrest because of his sins. So on that judgment day, I deserve to be taken, found guilty, thrown into that lake of fire, that whatever that place is that God made for the punishment of Satan and his angels. Terrible place. But I'm here today. I stand before you as one who's escaped the inevitable. I can promise you I didn't escape through my own efforts or ingenuity. It was an act of God himself. He chosen to create me and in time turn me from an enemy into a friend. And here's how it happened. Back to the book. There's me and my sin. Here's the Son of God, Jesus Christ. He agreed to own my sins. As if they were his own. As if he had committed all those terrible things that I have done. 
And what happens now is God now looks at his own son and sees him overloaded with sinfulness. One who now must be punished. There's been a transaction. And that is exactly what happened on that old rugged cross back there all those centuries ago outside Jerusalem. Jesus of Nazareth was battered and hanged on the cross by the Romans. But what the bystanders couldn't see, which it was, was what was taking part in the soul of Jesus, something between God the Father and the Son, all the fury which should have come my way was redirected to Jesus Christ on that afternoon. How do you concentrate an eternity of punishment due to me into a few hours? What intensity of retribution must there have been for God the judge to be satisfied that at the end the penalty had been carried out? It's just unimaginable. Only the Son of God could have you know, taken it. And when the ordeal was over, the Father's wrath ended. The Saviour on the cross died. He was to rise again. He was to rise again in a few days' time and show that he had the power over death itself. But what about me? God was able to look at me and see no sin. Paul Forrest, you're free to go. It's a great story. So decades after that happened, I was delivered from my sin. I'm standing here today declaring the same gospel to other people. And I can tell you, God is most certainly still in the business of saving souls. So if you're not sure that you are saved today, if you're not sure you are a disciple of Christ, if you're not sure whether he took the punishment for you or not, if you're not confident you're in a right relationship with God, then I urge you to go to God in prayer now, today. Admit your sinfulness. Tell him you believe Christ is the Saviour. Ask him to save you. Said, haven't I? God promises that all who come to Him sincerely will not be turned away. It really is true, friend, that uh, you can wake up one day as an enemy of God, and before the sun sets, you can be a friend of God and a son of God. I'd like to just finish off with a message for those who do belong to Jesus Christ. You who know God as the ultimate companion, saviour, friend, king, counsellor and father. God made us as social creatures. I mean, he made us to be supported by others and be a support to, to, to other people. He made us to seek out friends 
and be prepared to be a good friend for other people. So think of your brethren in Christ. They have God as their friend and there's nothing better. But God wants his children to be there for each other also. God gave us a need not just for him, but for fellowship with his other children as well. So that means we each have a responsibility to engage in fellowship. Those people who say they are Christians but they don't fellowship with the rest of the saints in a setting like this are disobeying God. Doesn't matter how much they pray in the bedroom, how much they know about the Bible, God's not impressed. It actually pleases God to see his children get together and support each other. Brothers and sisters in Christ, each of you is to always think about how you can be a good companion to your fellow believers. Look for ways to be their friend. Be always ready to help them. Let them unburden themselves on you, sharing their sufferings as well as their blessings. Anyone can just, you know, turn up a church and put a fake smile on and act nice. Uh, but, you know, be real, friends. Be real. Because in your sincere, active fellowship with the saints, you do the work of God. You reflect the character of of God, you bless the children of God and you bring glory to God, which after all is the <clears throat> ultimate purpose of all people. Amen.